0: Well, let me begin by extending a a note of gratitude to your session and your pastor, who, I don't know if you figured it out, happens to be my brother, for affording me the opportunity to share God's Word with you this morning. I'm always appreciative of churches who uh, sort of extend a sense of reverence at the pulpit, and Westminster has always been that kind of church to me, though I don't worship here regularly. I've always recognized it as having a very, very high view of the preaching of the Word of God, which, of course, makes me a little nervous when I come to share the Word with you, only to be highlighted by breaking my robe out of mothballs. It's slimming, though, isn't it? I think it's kind of slimming. And it highlights my gray. It's like a template to bring it out. Kind of look like my brother then, right? Um, but it's funny because I thought, well, you know, I probably should pick a nice, light, text, an easy text that I can handle. Somehow when my brother called me and asked me what I was preaching, out of my mouth came Colossians 1. I'm not sure what I was thinking when I chose that, but uh, it is his word. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul refers to Satan as one who's, uh, who disguises himself as an angel of light. I imagine many of you are familiar with that text and We would certainly understand that that this is intended as a deception to us, since, of course, we would deem ourselves smart enough to not sit under the teaching of a creature donned in horns and a pitchfork, as it were. But the question, then, is how often do we miss such deceptions because of the elaborate nature of their makeup? How often do we mistake the the disguised uh, angel of light as an actual angel of light? How often do we mistake things that are seemingly Christian but are not actually Christian. Now, now take that simple generic observation and put it on the back burner for a moment, if you will, in order to allow me to ask you to imagine a more specific scenario. Imagine that you were blessed to be used by God to lead a number of people to faith in Christ. And, and imagine that, that as you did that, of course, what you would do afterwards would be to walk with them, to, to uh, fellowship with them, to nurture them toward maturity. This would include such things as time of fellowship, basic discipleship, means of grace, and, of course, likely some good books for them to read and for you to discuss with them. Now, imagine that you had fallen out of touch with them for some time. And to your surprise, they had continued to read and study. Only when you were reunited with them and you were able to see, get a peek at their bookshelves, well, you found a mixture of some good books, some of which you had first encouraged them to read, and some of which you would hopefully be quick to discourage them. In their mind, they saw no reason to assume that any of these books that they had acquired since the time that they had uh, had separated from you, that they had somehow fallen out of the category of Christianity. They seemed good to them, but, but some of these works may be dangerously unorthodox. And this is not something that's all that hard to imagine either. By way of a secondary illustration, I could encourage you or challenge you to take a trip to your local Barnes & Noble. I did this recently, this week. And what you'll find when you go in is that they actually have a section devoted to the Christian life. In fact, it's called the Christian life. Not to be too cynical, that's a good thing, right? That should be an encouragement to us, and in some ways it is. Moreover, there were good books in there. As I perused the section, I found books by R.C. Sproul, by John Piper, some of the good books by Bonhoeffer. And I would encourage young believers to read these books, but these books I would say are soundly orthodox, good books for them to consider. But not surprisingly, I also found books that gave me some pause and others that I would outright reject. There were in this rather small section books on Roman Catholicism, as well as books driven by such things as The Prosperous Life, not to mention countless books on how to live better, how to eat better, how to diet better, how to balance your checkbook better, all to the glory of God somehow. Bit confusing, I might say. Well, in some sense, that is exactly what Paul was faced with in regard to the church at Colossia. There was what may simply be referred to as a a kind of a hodgepodge of different teachings, all being applied in order to attempt to grow in some rather misguided sense of Christian maturity. The issue is is sometimes referred to by commentators as the Colossian heresy because Paul is somewhat less specific about the numerous issues at play in Colossia than he is in in some of his other letters. In Galatians, for example, Paul is singularly focused on their compromising of the gospel. When writing to the Corinthians, Paul is specific in addressing the numerous issues at play there. Things like divisions and immorality, marriage and the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, just to name a few. However, when he writes to the Colossians, his concern seems somewhat a bit more ambiguous. Now, what is clear is that Paul is concerned not solely with, say, the misapplication of the Mosaic law, for example, the continuation of circumcision in the wake of Christ's first coming, or say, even issues generally associated solely with Gentiles, but it seems, as I said, some conglomeration of numerous different issues. Paul makes reference to observances to the ceremonial law, to asceticism, to the worshiping of angels, and to deceptive philosophies. That is, concepts driven by the elevation of human tradition or intellectualism, things that puff us up, as it were. In other words, stuff that makes us sound really impressive, but as Paul says, is futile in our effort to put to death the deeds of the flesh. It's clear that Paul is less concerned to give specific details about the heretical issues that were plaguing the Colossians, but he is concerned to undermine them in favor of a singular focus on the supremacy of Christ, which finds a clear crescendo in our text this morning. Now, when Paul first addresses the Colossians, his goal is simply to assert that they are in fact genuine believers. He shares with them the testimony that was shared with him concerning them, namely that he had heard of their love for the saints in Christ Jesus and that this love finds its cause in the word of truth, the gospel. He notes how they had learned this from Epaphras, a faithful minister of Christ, unlike those who had promoted false teachings likely mixed with a bit of truth. Next, Paul tells us that because they genuinely belong to the family of God, he has a specific way of praying for them. He prays continually for them, and his prayers are typically lofty. Paul doesn't pray light prayers. He prays heavy prayers. He he prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that they would be strengthened according to his glorious power, and that they would live with increasing gratitude for the precious gift of redemption. With that, Paul next focuses on countering every other effort to be religious with the preeminence or supremacy of Christ, which takes us to our text this morning. But we would do well to begin by asking the question, what is preeminence? The NIV says supremacy, Uh, other texts, other translations use preeminence. Not surprisingly, it has a Latin origin, and I promise not to bore you with that. It simply means to rise up, rise above, or excel over. And this word, preeminence, is often used in various linguistic applications, many of them rather secular in nature. But here the Apostle Paul has as its focus the words superlative use. And so it means to rise above or to excel and can be further defined as a superiority often connected with position, a title often associated with nobility, something you would probably hear in a Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox setting, titles such as His or Your Eminence. Now that gives us a a bit of a context of the linguistic understanding of the word eminence, but as I said, our word here is preeminence, and we can begin by the obvious acknowledgement of the prefix pre- meaning before, but let's just note this, that it can refer to more than just before in one manner. Certainly it means in reference to time, but also to such things as place or order or degree or importance. All of those things matter here. Not surprisingly, even this word, preeminence, can find a number of issues or, or uses regulated to merely secular applications. In addition to the example I just mentioned, it can include such things as presidents, billionaires, great athletes, uh, captains of industry. In the secular sense, it still has a reference to qualities of superiority that cannot be held by but a few people. However, it is clear that in the biblical context, this word finds its most profound expression. Here it is divinely chosen in a comprehensive manner as concerns both creation and redemption. Here it is correlative with Christ's declared deity. Thus, his preeminence is categorically distinct from the entirety of the created order. Christ both precedes and supersedes all things. As I already mentioned Paul is here concerned to convey to the Colossians the absolute sufficiency of Jesus Christ upon whose shoulders the very power of the gospel itself rests. And this is why these words are among the most robust expressions of Christology in the entire New Testament. The very efficacy of the gospel itself rests upon both the fullness of Christ's humanity and, as Paul is here primarily concerned with, the fullness of his deity. As Jesus is no mere messenger from God, nor is he some form of a demigod. He is no less than fully God. Anything less, and the gospel becomes impotent. And so this morning, this is what I want to do. I want to distinguish the two primary categories in which Paul declares the preeminence of Christ, namely in that, that in creation and in redemption. And then lastly, what I want us to do is to consider our response to this infallible declaration of the comprehensive nature of Christ's supremacy And its meaning for us, as regards not only our justification, but also our sanctification. That is, not only our salvation, but also our growth and maturity in Christ. The two categories of creation and redemption take up verses 15 through 20 and form a distinct literary unit. It was likely recognized as a piece of early Christian literature. One commentator puts it this way. He says, if it were not a literary gem composed by the apostle himself... It was probably a hymn or other fixed testimony of the church, maybe even an early creed. And since it is agreed upon that this passage is a singular unit, some broader considerations should be mentioned before dividing it up for further consideration. For instance, as a whole, the passage declares the full deity of Christ very early on in Christian history, only about 30 years after Christ's death. In fact, if it's a hymn, And Paul is merely reproducing it here. Jesus' deity was being declared even earlier than this letter. And what this does for us is to further counter any argument that is merely the stuff of legend. It's a simple apologetic, one among many for the deity of Christ. Another point that should be taken from the text as a whole is that the supremacy of Christ should give both the Colossians and us a deep assurance that the profound prayers that Paul prayed for them are able to be granted not because of the sincerity of Paul's heart for the Colossians, but because of the utter sovereignty of the second person of the Trinity. A third point for us to consider here in looking at the text as a whole is that both creation and redemption emanate from and are purposed for the same Christ. In other words, God's purposes in redemption are by no means at odds with his purposes within the created order, for he is sovereign over both. Paul gives us a sense of this in Romans 8 when he says that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ. I'm sure you're all familiar with it. Not tribulation or distress, not persecution or famine, not nakedness, danger or sword, not death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present or things to come. I imagine if Paul were writing today, he might say something like, not natural disasters, not economic crisis, not disease or sickness, not terror attacks, not secularizing government trends, various moral declines, not attacks on marriage, not even the growth of Islam. No, nothing in all of the created order can separate you, my people, from my redemptive purpose decreed for you before time began. As he states in verse 20 of our text, God intends to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, to himself. And so, brothers and sisters, be encouraged by these observations. Here, in addition to the acknowledging of of this historical origin of the letters as as serving as a simple apologetic for Christ, as as I said, one of many, we have some critical components to add to our theology of prayer. Paul prays in accordance to the spiritual status of the Colossians, namely that they were genuine believers. It's not an evangelistic prayer, it's a discipling prayer. Second, that Paul is confident that his prayers will be answered, as I said before, not because of his sincerity, but because of the full deity of the one to whom he prays. Paul trusts that his prayers, to the extent that they are submissive to the will of God, will be answered based solely on the person and work of his Son and our status in him. And lastly, that the purpose of redemption is not thwarted by anything in the entire created order, though in a fallen world there are clear enemies to our redemption. But as Paul tells us in Romans, those For those who love God, that is, for those who belong to God, for those who are united to the risen Christ, all things work together for good, the very word that God uses to describe his created order before the fall. So in the minutia of everyday life, or in the frustrations of life, the difficulties of life, even the things that seem to thwart us from good activities, they too are subject to God, and they too are used by him for our sanctification. Thus, they too, that is, anything in the created order, is used by our loving Heavenly Father for our sanctification. And with that, let us take a look at the preeminence of Christ. As I noted earlier, this text gives us two sort of big categories to consider the preeminence or the supremacy of Christ under creation and redemption. But as we stand ready to look more closely at those categories, I want to offer you a slightly more detailed vantage point from which to consider Christ's preeminence, his absolute supremacy. Namely, uh, in his relationships. Ultimately, we're considering how we are related to him. But we want to see how he is related first to the Father, then to the created order, then to the church, and of course, by way of extension, to us, for we belong to the church. So, beginning in verses 15 through 17, we can see the category of creation consisting here in these verses, and we can further break that down by noting the first two subcategories that I just mentioned here. First, Christ's relationship to the Father, and thus Paul begins, he is the image of the invisible God. Well, what does that mean? And I think it'd be helpful to see this in terms of the categories that I just mentioned. Christ's relationship to the Father, or more closely, to get at what Paul means here, the eternal Son's relationship to the Father. The second person of the Godhead's relationship to the first person of the Godhead. What Paul is getting at here is in reference to Christ's pre-incarnate nature. He is... The words he is, is according to his personhood, which rests fully in his deity. In other words, the Son is not a mirror image of God. That is not a merely visual duplication of God. But we might ask, well, what about Jesus' words to Philip that we read as our gospel reading this morning? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus says, "Do do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Well, what does Jesus mean if not what we are seeing physically? Well, I think one valuable way to consider this statement is to turn to the ancient language, the Creta language, regarding Christ, namely that he is one person with two natures. In other words, when Paul says that he is the image of the invisible God, he is starting it out by pulling away the veil of his humanity to reveal his deity, his eternality. And think about this in terms of the Mount of Transfiguration, for example. There, the glory of God, the fullness of Christ's deity, manifested visually. So here as well, Paul is drawing our attention to the fact that our consideration of Jesus must begin with his eternal nature. It must begin with his relationship to the Father. It must begin by asserting the fullness of his deity. Therefore, Jesus cannot merely be another form of God. He cannot be, as mentioned earlier, a demigod, God-like. He must be God in every sense of the word. He is not the Father or the Spirit, but he is fully God. And so he must be eternal. He must be omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. He must be sovereign. He must be self-sufficient and holy. He must possess all the same attributes in exactly the same manner as God. But we must be careful here as well. For it cannot equate simply to common attributes, but rather to the essence of those attributes. It must boil down to the question of nature, namely that he is, as we have said, and labored to say, fully God. And so Paul is saying two things here. First, that Jesus is himself God. And secondly, that Jesus is God revealed. And this is not utterly new, by the way. We can consider a number of other passages in Scripture. The opening prologue to John's Gospel declares, And the Word was God. Paul says these exact words in 2 Corinthians 4, namely that Christ is the image of God. God. We can also think of the opening words of the letter to the Hebrews, which declares that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And let us not forget Paul's words to the Philippians, though he, Christ, was in the form of God, not kind of quality with God, a thing to be grasped. Therefore, the Son, being the image of the invisible God, is simply fully God. He cannot belong to the created order. He has no beginning and no end. He is the firstborn of all creation. Now, what this does not mean is that Christ was created first, but rather that he holds privilege over the whole created order as would a firstborn over his inheritance rights. And to confirm this, all we need to do is look at verse 16. Paul says that by him, all things were created. Here we can see Christ's relationship to the entire created order. Let's begin by considering how John puts it in the opening words of his gospel. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now John seems to be belaboring the point, but so does Paul when he continues, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. Notice the parallels that Paul seems to be drawing between the various realms of creation, heaven and earth. Visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. Don't miss something very important here. All of this belongs to the created order. Heaven as well as earth, visible as well as invisible. The created order does not consist merely in that which is made up of matter, but rather of all things which have a beginning. Paul says in very concise language, all things were created through him. We could ask, how can something or someone who belongs to the created order be a conduit through which all things of that order were created? simply cannot be. It's a contradiction. Christ stands entirely outside of the created order. And this demands our acknowledgement of his eternality. Abraham Kuyper, the famous, well, famous if you study theology, famous Dutch theologian, probably you guys are all going, "Who?" He's a well known Dutch theologian. He writes this. He says, There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Now, Paul goes on and he says something that cannot be overlooked here. Not only were all things created through Christ, but they were created for Christ. When Kuiper writes those words, he did not perceive Christ as crying mine over all of, of creation merely because it owed its existence to him. Well, that be certainly true. But because it was brought into being for him, that is, for his glory. All of creation finds its highest purpose in ascribing glory to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As verse 17 states Christ's preeminence, that is, his supremacy is not solely with regard to importance, but also to time. We do not worship a, excuse me, Jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together. We don't worship a God who is distant or uninvolved. On the contrary, Jesus is intimately involved in the whole of his creation. He providentially orders it. He directs and purposes it. And he gives special care to his people within that created order, his church, which is exactly where the next verses take us. Paul has now completed his declarations of Christ's preeminence in creation, or as I've tried to show, in his relationship firstly to the Father and then over the entire created order, and now he moves on to the realm of redemption, his relationship to his bride, to his body, the church. Begins by asserting that he is the head of the body, the church, clearly language that is redemptive in nature. Now Paul has spent plenty of time elsewhere illustrating the function of the church using the image of the body, but here he is emphasizing the primacy of the head, and that, of course, makes sense to us, does it not? Physiologically, the head is the control center of the body, and while it cannot survive on its own, the body does not relegate operations to the head, it's the other way around. The head controls all the functions within the body, and so it is with the church. Christ alone is the head and the cornerstone. Reverend John Tweedle, who is also a professor at Reformation Bible College, makes an interesting observation concerning this. He notes that the modern-day church often struggles because it operates with what he might describe as a decapitated eschatology or ecclesiology. Excuse me. Here I am standing at my brother's pulpit. I want to say eschatology. It, just, it, just, it wants to come out. I, I, yeah. Ecclesiology. A decapitated ecclesiology. I know it's almost Halloween. It has nothing to do with that scary, weird stuff. But think about that for a minute. That that, that Oftentimes, the church, as man-centered, severs the head from the body and thinks in terms of what does the body need, rather than what does the head desire or command. Profound observation, indeed. Paul continues. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. This language also clearly belongs to the category of redemption. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, the first to experience resurrection, never to die again. He has conquered death. And this is the very design of the Father, For Paul writes, that in everything, he might have supremacy or he might be preeminent. Now, take a moment and reflect on what we've considered up to this point. The Son's relationship to the Father His relationship to creation and to the church, the fullness of His deity. That He is eternal, preceding all created things. That all things were not only made through Him, but for Him. That He sustains all things providentially for His good pleasure. Moreover, He redeems us, being our head, and has procured eternal life for us by being the firstborn from the dead. When we consider the Son in these categories, we are gifted. With an exponentially more profound vista, a hearty and robust Christology. That, let me again emphasize that all of this is a matter of intent too—the very design of the Father. For it was pleasing to the Father that all the fullness of God should dwell in Christ. Not only that, but Christ's atoning work is the source of reconciliation. Reconciliation, excuse me, for all things, whether on earth or in heaven, through His shed blood, peace has been restored. So we can see that Paul has labored to show Christ's supremacy in his relationship to the Father, in his relationship over the entire created order, and in his relationship to the church as her Redeemer. And now, having considered these things, having gained a sense of reverence for not only what Christ has done, but also for who he is, we can now consider his relationship to us. And as I said earlier, this is by extension of his relationship to the church, for we are the church. In a very real sense, this could be considered as a question of our response to all of the truth regarding his preeminence. You'll notice verse 21 addresses the church. It's generic. And you, plural, God has reconciled to himself through his son. In other words, Paul gives a general statement of reconciliation in verse 20, but in verse 21, he gets far more specific in verse 21, it's, and you, you who are alienated, you who are hostile in mind, as the ESV says, you who are doing evil deeds or acting sinfully, you, God has reconciled to himself through his son's death. And Why? So as to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. And then Paul adds, what many perceive as a condition, one that seems to challenge one of the most precious as well as controversial doctrines in the Reformed faith, the doctrine of election, in other words, it would be perceived you were reconciled if you continue in the faith. But of course, this is not what is happening. Remember, Paul began by asserting the genuineness of the Colossians' faith and the sufficiency and preeminence of Christ. Thus, the question is, is, then is, is, what happens? What happens in your heart and what happens in your mind when you consider such things? Does the declaration of such profound truths weigh heavy on your heart? Do they result in a genuine conviction over sin? Do they cause you to think carefully about how you live? Do they challenge you to express, express real gratitude for the gospel in both your thoughts and your actions? If so, then the gospel is good news for you. However, if these declarations have no effect on you, then you have a real cause for concern. If it doesn't change you and you still continue to sin. If such truths do not cause any conviction or reverence, then you have real cause for concern. You you, you may not think so, but if your attention continues to be towards self rather than towards Christ in awe of who he is, as well as what he has done in covenant with the Father for us, then you will indeed struggle to continue in the faith. In fact, the very nature of that faith must be drawn into question. Is it saving faith? And so Paul is not asserting a condition by which one may be saved, but rather a fruit of genuine salvation. Do you desire to continue in the faith? Do you acknowledge no other hope besides the gospel? Do you desire to be conformed into the image of the son? You hunger and thirst for God. Do you regard his word as increasingly valuable? Do you exhibit more of the fruit of the spirit? Do you care increasingly for the lost. Do you feel increasing remorse over sin? Do you desire heaven more than earth? If your answer to these questions is more in the yes category than in the no, you will continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, and and you are indeed reconciled to God. But if not, then you ought to be deeply burdened over this, and I would encourage you to see your pastor, or me, or one of your elders. See, our response to the infallible declarations of the preeminence of Christ in both creation and redemption should be one of gratitude that is followed by a life that delights God. So my challenge to you is to deeply consider not just the facts of Christ's absolute supremacy, but more specifically, what your response is to them. How is your life, your witness, different because of it? How do these divinely inspired truths concerning both the person and the work of Christ impact you? Do they create a life that is an expression of gratitude to God for His mercy? Can you say that such truths are so renewing to your mind that they produce genuine Christ-like transformation. Of course, it is my hope that they do both for you and for me. But while that is my challenge to you, my charge to you is this, that you make certain that they do. That you apply these truths to your calling and to your election to make them sure. You work out your salvation with fear and with trembling, for it is God who works in you. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are grateful for your word, and we are grateful for your word incarnate. Lord, may we be humbled to live a life of gratitude in light of the sheer wonder of the incarnation. Your Son and his eternality, in his supremacy in all things, And that is what it takes to defeat our sin, to crush that, to put it to death. May we die daily. And may our lives be hidden in Christ for your glory. We pray this in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.